You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. And uh, for those of you guys um, that haven't been with us, this is obviously something we don't normally do this way. Um, Normally we transition now into a time where we would just be teaching for a while. But one thing that God's really laid on my heart in... um, when we desired to plant this church is that we handle the word differently maybe than we've seen done in other churches that we want to put a high priority on the word, meaning that we want to teach it effectively, teach it biblically, but then also really put a high premium on applying it to our life. And so obviously we've been spending a a good amount of time the last couple of weeks talking about um, sanctification and what that looks like for us. And specifically in the context of sexual purity, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul tells us that's God's will for our life. And um, what are you saying? I thought you were trying to get my attention. Um, And so really we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks, and I really want us to strive to apply that today through just an avenue of us encouraging one another, asking questions, and dialoguing about some different things. But before we get into that, I want to draw our attention back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and um, give us some further guidance as far as understanding God's will for our life. So let's look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, this is Paul planting this church in Thessalonica, communicating truth to this church. He has been run out of town because of persecution. And now he's trying to get back to this church because there's more things that they need to know about following Jesus. He's invested a lot in their life. He's discipled them, but he's not finished. And he's trying to get back to them. And until he's able to get back to them, he's passing on this instruction to them through letter. It says in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. We said that that Paul is excited and pleased with their spiritual growth, but he's encouraging it to increase, to continue. More and more he wants to see them growing in their relationship with Christ. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we've been talking a lot about what Paul intends for this church in, in view of sexual purity. He's telling them this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. And we define sanctification as God um, working in our life through the Holy Spirit where we're becoming more and more like Christ. And, and we're, um, we're giving up sin more and more on a regular basis. Okay, so sanctification is our movement towards holiness on a practical level. So we've been declared righteous, declared perfect by Christ at salvation. But now God is renovating us. God is changing us into what he wants us to be. And we use the illustration that it's like um, an investor who purchases a house that's completely torn up and messed up and needs to be completely renovated. 
He purchases that house, but he doesn't intend to leave it that way. He fixes it up. He restores it. He makes it his own. And that's what God has done to us. He's taken us in our sin, in our brokenness, in the fact that we have nothing good to offer him. He saved us, not based on anything we've done, but based on the work of Christ. And now he's changing us. He's changing us into holiness. And he's doing that on a practical level every day with the Holy Spirit. And part of the way he does that is through the fellowship of the local church. So he says, God's will for your life is your sanctification. And then he kind of gives them a practical application for them in their context. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We said that um, this idea of abstaining is that we are so far away from sexually immoral type things that for someone to even hint at the fact that we are involved in something, it would shock everybody else. That we take such a strong stance against sexual impurity that we're so far from it, that we've protected ourselves, we've removed temptation from our life, that we stay away from temptation in our life, that, that there's not even a hint of sexual immorality in our life. Um, that we abstain from it, that we protect ourselves, we guard ourselves against it, knowing that we're susceptible to fall in that area. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And we talked about from 1 Corinthians that, that Paul's instruction to the early Christians was one way that we learn to control our sexual desires that God has given us. God has given us these desires. Um, they're good desires, and they're meant to be fulfilled in the way that he's designed. Part of the way that we fight sexual immorality is that we pursue um, enjoying sex the way that God intended, and that's through a godly, um, a godly marriage. And so 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I encourage you, if you have uh, desires for, um, for marriage, for sex, that you pursue it the right way, that you control your body, you pursue marriage, you pursue it in a God-honoring way. He says, I encourage you to do that. He also kind of jumped in there and said, you know, from Paul's perspective, he says, my desire is that you'd stay single. That you do everything you could to stay single because we talked about it last week that single people have more time and more resources to serve God with. They have less responsibility. They're not raising kids. They're not responsible to serve uh, an individual spouse. So they've got more resources and more time on their hands. And Paul says, I encourage you, if you can, stay single. Commit to singleness for the rest of your life and serve God with the extra time and resources that you have. But he makes that provision. He says, if you can't. If you look at it and say, look, I've got desires that God's given me that um, there's such a temptation to use those desires wrongly that I've got to pursue marriage. And Paul says, excellent, wonderful. God's designed it for you to fulfill these desires in the best way possible. And we, we've talked about the fact that we don't want to remain sexually pure out of a legalistic mindset. That the Bible says don't commit adultery, don't have sex outside of marriage. And view it as though God's trying to rob us of our joy. I told you last week that God's intention is to, um, to give you the joy that you so long for. And we need to interpret his commands in light of the fact that his commands are good and, and are, are for our best. And we've talked about the fact that um, sexual immorality is not good for us. And we've talked about some of the different ways how pornography can be destructive towards us, how fornication, sex before marriage, or sex outside of marriage with adultery, like these things damage us and damage the joy that God has for us. So he's not a, a cosmic killjoy in the sense that he's made these commands just out of nowhere and is enforcing them upon us. 
that God has said, look, I really, as my children, I want what's best for you. And so the commands are given to us in a, in a, um, a good way. He's designed them for the best, for our good. So he says, learn how to control your own body. And we said that that can mean both controlling our passions, but also seeking to fulfill those, those passions in a God-honoring way through marriage. He says that um, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We said passion of lust. Those two words are trying to communicate to us out of control desires. Like we're just being driven and controlled by our out of control desires. And he says the reason that lost people live this way is because they don't know God. When they hear that we should save sex for marriage, because they don't know God, they think that that is something that's restrictive. Something that's hindering their joy. But because we know God, because we can look at Scripture and know that everything that God's done for us is for our good, we can also interpret his commands in light of that goodness. That if God tells us to do something, it's not because he's trying to rob us of our joy. It's for our good. Okay, so all of God's history for his people has been that he's working for their good. And and we use the, the Ten Commandments as an illustration. Exodus 20. What did God use right before he gives the Ten Commandments? What does he remind the children of Israel about? What did we say last week? Yeah, we said that, that God starts off Exodus chapter 20 by saying, remember, I'm the God that saved you out of slavery in Egypt. They had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years under the oppression and persecution of these Egyptians who were just whipping their tail and, and, and abusing them and using them so that they could kick back and not have to build their own buildings. I mean, just abusing the the children of God. And God says in Exodus 20, I'm the God who saved you out of Egypt. Now, listen to my commands. Now, we said the wrong response to that is to say, we have to pay God back for the good that he's done for us. Oh, God got us out of Egypt. Now we owe him. We have to obey these commands. And that's not what God's saying. God is saying, look. Remember, remember, I had your good in mind. I saved you out of Egypt. I'm a good God that is concerned about your joy. I've saved you out of Egypt. I'm bringing you to the promised land. Now, knowing that I'm a good God, see my commands in light of my goodness. That when I tell you to not commit adultery, when I tell you not to covet and instead to be content with what you have, that this is for your good. We don't pay God back and we don't earn God's favor with our obedience. Christ has earned that favor for us by being 100% obedient to the law for us. And we certainly can't pay God back by saving sex until marriage. Like that does nothing to pay God back. Okay? That God is calling us to that lifestyle because it's the best for us. It allows us to enjoy the sexual relationship to its fullest. That there's trust and um, longevity there that that secures that marriage. And we, we said that. Um, We should see God's commands not as a fence that restricts us from being able to do what we want to do, but instead as protection for a garden. We're not in a prison. We're in a garden that needs to be protected. And that's what God's commands about sexual purity are for. So he says, act like you know God. Act like you know the goodness of God. Act like you know that God saved his people from Egypt. Act like you know that you know that God sent his son to die on the cross for you. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. We said that um, sexual immorality is ultimately using somebody else for your gratification without the commitment of marriage. And and he says we don't abuse people like that. We don't use people for what we want. We don't transgress our brothers. Why? 
Because God is coming to, to bring judgment on sexual immorality is what Paul says. He's coming as the avenger to bring punishment on sexual immorality. He says, we've told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right. Um, turn over with me to First Peter chapter 4. Chapter 4, Peter almost lays out a very similar format for what he's instructing to believers here. Look what he says in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We've got that same format there where it's talking about the fact that Gentiles live this way. We should no longer live this way because we know God and we know God's will now. And he remind, Peter reminds that, that God is coming to judge this type of activity says, um, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. That same idea, controlling our bodies, controlling our passions. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's that same idea. We don't abuse people. We don't use people. We serve people. We love people. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's kind of echoing the same idea that Paul's saying. He's saying, look, now that you're saved, you don't live like this anymore. You don't live in this type of sexual immorality. And he elaborates even further on, on the type of lifestyle. But specifically, sexual immorality is once again mentioned here. He says, instead, control your bodies. Live like you know the will of God. Control yourself um, and serve other people. Love other people as opposed to using other people. Why is this so important? Why should we be concerned about the will of God? Because Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God. What? Your sanctification. Specifically, abstaining from sexual immorality. It's important because of what 1 John says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, if you want to turn there real quick. First John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That, that's a strong statement there. 
How do we know people that are going to be in eternity with God forever? How do we know people that are, that are truly saved, that are going to be enjoying God forever and not be under his wrath and his vengeance? It's people that do the will of God. It's people that recognize the things of this world are passing away, including sex. Like the, the passions of this world are passing away. A Christian recognizes, I live for eternity now, not for the things of this world. Um, the video that we posted on the city this week is, is a strong testimony to that. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, then I encourage you to watch it this week. It's about um, a guy named Ian and a girl named Larissa. Um, they were dating for 10 months, had every plans to get married. Ian was in a car wreck, had a, had a traumatic brain injury, and um, really lost a lot of his function and a lot of his mental capacity. And, it, and it, at first was unable to communicate with um, his girlfriend uh, because of her love for him. And her understanding that, that marriage is not about her, um, she continued to pursue a relationship with him. Once they were able to communicate, um, they pursued marriage, and, and they are enjoying a God-honoring marriage today despite his disability. And it's really challenging to see that she has set aside a lot of her own personal desires to serve him and to love him and to care for him. Um, and it's a, it's a true testimony to what marriage is really supposed to be, that picture of Christ and the church. Um, but I think she ultimately recognizes marriage points to something that's eternal. Like, desires that she has are passing away. That ultimately it's about what's going to be around for eternity. And we're told this in First John, that um, a true Christian does the will of God. We take that back to First Thessalonians 4. A true Christian strives to be sanctified, strives to remain sexually pure, controlling his body, unlike the Gentiles, because he knows God and knows the goodness of God. All right? A um, couple things you may want to write down just before we transition into a time of, of Q&A about this. Obviously, Paul is instructing us specifically about God's will in relation to sexual purity. Big picture, it's your sanctification. God's will for your life, sanctification. For some reason, um, churches try to, or churches have mistakenly thought that God's will is something that we have to figure out. We don't have to figure out God's will for our life. He's told us. He's told us, Jason, God's will for your life, be sanctified. Dave, God's will for your life, be sanctified. We've tried to, to muddy it and confuse it to say, I don't know what God wants for my life. Yes, you do. Like, he wants you to be sanctified. Big picture, he wants you to be like Christ. He wants you to be pursuing holiness. Paul says specifically in the area of sexual immorality, make good choices where you control your body and you pursue sexual purity in marriage. Well, how does that look for other decisions that we have to make? What, is that, what does that look like for making decisions for where to go to college? Uh, what occupation to pursue? Where should I live? Who should I marry? Like, those are things that we desire to know God's will for our life about. God doesn't specifically lay it out in Scripture um, what those answers are. I mean, God doesn't tell Thomas where to go to college. Um, he, he doesn't tell Adam what occupation to pursue. He doesn't tell Jason what, what um, medical school to go to. Like, those are things that he leaves in our hands to choose. But I think we can take even the principles that he gives us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and make good God-honoring, God-pleasing decisions in every aspect of our life. Um, so if you're, if you're wanting to write some of this down, you can write down this. God wants my decision-making to be motivated by three things that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm going to show you where we also see that in other passages of Scripture. God wants my decision-making to be motivated by three different things.
first, a desire for spiritual growth in myself and others. Your decision-making about college, who to marry, what occupation to pursue, any other decision you can think of, for you to, to, to be in God's will and make the right decision, God wants your decision-making to be motivated by a desire for spiritual growth for yourself and for others. How do we know that? Well, God says his desire for your will is your sanctification. And we've talked about sanctification is not an individual thing. It's a group thing. So I can't just be concerned about my spiritual growth. I have to be concerned about Ben's spiritual growth, Tyson's spiritual growth. So I make decisions not that are just good for my spiritual growth, but also in light of what's going to be good for Tyson's spiritual growth. How can I possibly evaluate a decision that I've got to make in relation to Tyson's spiritual growth? Okay. Um, I'm going to give you guys some verses to look up so I don't have to do all the reading. First uh, Timothy 2, 3 through 6. Who wants to take that one? All right. First Timothy 2, 3 through 6. First uh, Peter 4, 19. Who would like to look that one up? All right. Um, First Peter two thirteen through fifteen. Okay. All right. We'll start with that. Who's got First Timothy two three through six? All right. Read that for us. This is what God our deliverer regards as good. This is what meets His approval. He wants all humanity to be delivered and come to full knowledge of the truth. For God is one, and there is but one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus the Messiah, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom on behalf of all, thus providing testimony to God's purpose at just the right time. All right. It says that he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is telling us what his will is. He wants mankind to be saved, but not just saved from hell. To come to the full knowledge of what it means to follow Jesus. So, when we make decisions, we have to make decisions with a desire for our spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others. Why? Because God has told us what his heart is. His heart is to see people get saved and come to the full knowledge of the truth. So you want to know that you're being pleasing to God with your decision making? You evaluate your decision making in light of what God has said his desire is. For mankind to be saved and for people to come to the full knowledge of the truth. And I'll, I'll share with you in a minute how that kind of looks practically for some of these decisions that we've already talked about that we have to make. Uh, secondly, not only does our, our decision-making need to be motivated by a desire for spiritual growth, secondly, a mindset of contentment with his goodness. A mindset of contentment with his goodness. Is that the yeah, that's the second one. A mindset of contentment. With his goodness. So I'm making a decision. I've got to be in a mindset where I'm content with God's goodness. Recognizing that everything that God gives to me is good. Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. So I receive everything in my life. Things that I view as good. And things that I view as bad. And receive them as God being good to me. So when I'm making decisions, I'm content with God's goodness. So I don't make decisions based on discontentment. Like, I don't, I don't make decisions to, to change something about my life because I'm discontent with what I have. I, I'm making decisions what's motivated out of contentment with God's goodness. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. 
All right, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Even when we're in the midst of suffering, Peter says, we entrust our life knowing that, that he is good to us, that he is faithful to us, even in the midst of suffering, that we entrust it to him while we do good, while we pursue a life of holiness. It says, First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, which we'll get to um, eventually. Yeah, I don't know when we'll get to it. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That idea of serving instead of abusing others. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So even in the midst of suffering, when people are doing bad to us, we're returning it with good. Why? So it's verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I tried to do a search on will of God to see everywhere it shows up in Scripture. The only problem is, is that if the word will and the word God is in the sentence, then it shows up. So it's like a ridiculous amount because if it's God, if it says God will do something, then it shows up. So it was hard for me to really get all these passages that talk about this. But this is another clear section where it says this is the will of God. What? That you're giving thanks in all circumstances. That you've learned contentment. And we see that even in 1 Thessalonians 4. Where we're not acting in the passion of our lust. We're not being controlled by uncontrollable desires. Things that, that we're, trying to, we're trying to find contentment with. We're already approaching it from a contented state. We're content with God's goodness. So we make decisions in light of the fact that God wants us to grow spiritually. He wants others to grow spiritually. We make decisions based on being content with God's goodness. And then thirdly, a perspective of serving others rather than using others. I make decisions based on serving others rather than using others. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told not to transgress or wrong our brother. The passages that we've just looked at, we're told to serve others. We don't use other people for our benefit. We serve other people for their benefit. Did I get 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15? Read that one for us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as a or to the All right, here we're told to be subjected to the, the authorities that are over us. Uh, governmental authorities, people in the workplace, people in the classroom. We're submitted to authorities over us. Why? This is the will of God. How does that look? That by, by, um, by doing good, by submitting to this, we put to, the, put to um, silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That we're directing people to God by the change in our lifestyle. This is, this is the will of God. That we serve others rather than use others. First Thessalonians um, chapter 5 again. The section before what I just read. It says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. And are over you in the Lord and admonish you. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is talking about more the, the authority within the church. That we're submitted to church authority. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you brothers... And then it goes in again to serving others rather than abusing others. Think about the list that we get in Scripture about things that Christians should and shouldn't do. 
Like slander and gossip, that's abusing others. We are using other people to make ourselves look better. See, if I can get together with Tyson and slander and gossip about somebody else, my hope is that by the end of that conversation, Tyson views me as a better person than the person I've just abused. So if you think about it, the things that we're told to do kind of fall into this perspective that we need to be controlled. So when you look at some of these lists of sins, think of it in terms of, well, some of these involve me controlling my sinful desires. And then the others in the list usually involve me serving rather than abusing other people. So we kind of see this format all through the New Testament. So we make decisions based on spiritual growth for myself and others, a mindset of contentment, And then a perspective of serving rather than abusing. And when we evaluate our decision making like that, we're kind of free to make the decisions that we want to make. When our desires are lined up with God's desires that we've seen here, then I'm free to choose what college I want to go to without worrying about um, making a mistake and going to the wrong one. That I can evaluate my motives, and if my motives are right, then I can pick and choose and make decisions knowing that I'm honoring God and fulfilling his will. But how do we make sure our decision making is properly motivated? Um, two things real quick. Some questions that you can ask yourself in making decisions. Are they in line with God's will? Number one, are my desires being shaped by the wisdom of God's word and the leading of his spirit? Are my desires being shaped by the wisdom of God's word and the leading of his spirit? We need the wisdom of, of, of God's word and the spirit. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us not to lean on our own understanding, not to make decisions based on what we think is good, but to search for, for wisdom in the word. James 1, 5 through 8 talks about if we lack wisdom, then we can ask of God who gives liberally. I mean, he just he is willing to dump wisdom onto us when we admit that, that humbly we don't have all the answers. We don't know what to do in a situation. We need God's wisdom in making a decision that will... Um, possibly affect the rest of our life, like where to go to college, who to marry, what occupation to pursue. Are my desires being shaped by the wisdom of God's word and the leading of his spirit? Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's again, don't be controlled by uncontrollable desires. Be controlled by the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See that pattern again. Don't be controlled by uncontrollable desires. Be controlled by the Spirit. Be self-controlled. Serve others. Don't abuse others. And then number two. Am I protecting myself from my own pride and ignorance by seeking the wisdom of others? Am I protecting myself from my own pride and ignorance By seeking the wisdom of others. See, if I've got a big decision to make, I can evaluate it and and try to figure out, is it good for my spiritual growth, the spiritual growth of others? Um, Am I being motivated by contentment or am I making a decision out of discontent, trying to satisfy myself? Am I trying to serve instead of abuse others? 
But even in that, I still need the wisdom of other people to help me a lot of times make decisions. And we see this principle in Scripture in uh, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's the the admonition to not seek counsel from wicked people. Don't get the wrong type of counsel. Instead, Proverbs 11.14, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors... There is safety. I like that last phrase there. Where there's an abundance of counselors, there is safety. If I'm seeking the wisdom of other people, I've got some safety, some protection there that I don't make a stupid, dumb decision. Because I've got other people that are helping me evaluate and make a right, God-honoring decision. So I seek counsel, not from the wicked, but from the godly within the church, and I've got safety there. In uh, Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. This is even the encouragement to seek wisdom almost before you need it. Like, listen and be in tune with people that are older and wiser than you so that when you need that wisdom in the future, you've already got it. You've already committed yourself to getting that wisdom in advance almost. And then lastly, and then we're going to discuss some of this together. Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war and an abundance of counselors. There is victory. That's, to me, an even stronger, more encouraging perspective that wise guidance helps us wage our warfare. And we're talking in context of sexual immorality, that we can seek guidance and wisdom from others to wage our war. And what does it say? Where there's an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And I wanted to use that verse to kind of transition into um, a time of discussion about Sexual immorality in the context of pursuing sexual purity the way that God's designed it. So what I wanted to do today, we've we've admitted one of the best ways to fight sexual immorality that God has given us is to pursue a godly marriage. That we don't just pursue marriage so we can have sex whenever we want to. That's not the purpose. That's not the design that God's given to us. But that God has given us certain desires that have a way to be fulfilled in a way that brings glory and honor to him. And that's my desire for this church. I think we've got an abundance of counselors here to help our church grow in this area. I've made the comment to a couple people recently that our church is so blessed with the married couples that we have here. Because um, I think we have such an example of what it means for a husband and wife to love each other in all the married couples that we have here. It's such a testimony and example to what it looks like to love the spouse and to love the kids. Um, I I praise God and thank God that we've got examples like this in our church for those of you that aren't married yet. And so I wanted to use that as a way to transition this morning into, um, I guess, sharing wisdom and seeking wisdom 
about pursuing godly marriage, since our church dynamic is kind of unique where we've got maybe half of us that are married and then half of us are single, but pretty much at an age where, where we could be married. Um, so I'm going to kind of get us started with some discussion. I'm going to post some questions and then um, give you guys the opportunity to respond. And if that generates further questions that maybe you have, then we'll go with that as well. And if it gets awkwardly silent, then I'll jump back in with some other pre, pre-made questions. Um, I wanted to start off to, to gain some wisdom from, from guys and girls that are already married. What are, some, what are some practical things from a guy perspective that our single guys can be doing right now to prepare for a godly marriage? We'll get to the girl perspective in a minute, but the, the wives can even share, I think, for this as well. What are some practical things that, that our single guys can be doing right now? You know, I've had a lot of conversations with most of you guys over the years. I know with the exception of maybe a couple, everybody's expressed to me a desire to be married one day. Okay, so pretty much we're all in agreement. Paul's talking to a different set of people when he says be single for the rest of your life and serve God as a single person. That most everybody here wants to be married, wants to have a family. Um, So what are some practical things that our guys can do that you can think of that is going to help set them up for success in the future in marriage? I'll kind of open that up for you guys to to share. Okay. Start becoming. I think it kind of goes to what you were speaking about last week is. You know, being prepared. Um, my brother and I were having this conversation with Christian and uh, his wife last week as well. Um, marriage, from a guy's perspective, is not something that you need to just do. You need to be prepared for that. You're, you're, you're called to be the provider of the family. Guys are called to be the provider of the family. Guys are called to be the spiritual leaders of the family. Um, so, if you're not prepared to do that, then you're not prepared to be married. So, you, you've got to be in the Word so that you understand what it means to be a spiritual leader. So that when your wife comes to you and says, "Hey, what, what's you know?" It's not you're not making the decision based on your feelings. You're making the decisions on what God says needs to have to say. You've got to be in the Word and understand that. The other thing is, from a financial perspective, you've got to be a provider. Um, my brother was saying he was listening to a guy talk, and um, his son was what, 18, he said? I think he said his son was 18. Um, and at 18 years old, he had already purchased a house, had a savings account, had purchased a car. And he went to his dad and said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to be married. And the father said, from a biblical perspective, all that I can tell him was, you're really young. He said, but that's all that I can say because he, he was providing, he had a $60,000 a year income. He you know, had a house, had a job, no debt whatsoever. And the father was like, and my only comeback biblically was, no, 
nothing, but as a father, he said, you're really young. He said, now he waited until he was 22, 23, or whatever he could marry. But he said, that was an example of one of my kids that actually listened to me. You know, this is what I told him, this is how you prepare for marriage. And my son, that guy did that. That 18 year old's not playing around. No. <laughs> that guy's ready to, ready to roll. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, the guy did play a few years ago. I think he was last year he got married. I think he got married last year. Um, but, you know, being prepared because you've got to be financially sound. You've got to be financially yeah, sound, I guess is a good word. And you've got to be scripturally sound because there's going to be so much junk that comes your way, stuff that comes your way. You can't, you can't try to, you don't have the time to try to figure all that out. And, well, where's my money coming from? Where's this coming from? You know, what's that going to be? You can't, there's just so much that you're getting garage with in a new marriage. Yeah, and that's, that's unique to the guy, for sure. I mean, you're talking about two aspects of provision, both um, monetarily, physically, like providing for physical needs. That requires, like Jen said, knowing what you're going to do. Like, what do you want to do? What, what is your plan for generating income to provide for a family? And using this time now to think about that and to prepare for that, because, you know, with the exception of a couple of you guys that are still in high school, I mean, you guys are out of high school now. I mean, it's time to start making those big decisions. What am I doing with my life? What am I doing in school? How does that affect long-term how I'm going to take care of a family? But then the even more important part is the spiritual provision. How am I going to provide uh, spiritually for my family? And, um, you know, I've, I've shared with you before the conversations that Jesse and I, and I are having right now, that Jesse has to grow up spiritually so that when, when he gets married, his wife is coming to him for spiritual leadership and not always feeling like she has to go to a pastor or, or leader in the church. That, hey, I can go to my husband. He's going to shepherd my heart. He's going to provide answers to scripture that I need to know, as opposed to me having to go to another male figure in the church. And so taking that serious now and saying, okay, I got I to gotta start, start working. Like, I, I got to start getting prepared. I'm not just providing for my spiritual growth like we already said today. I've got to provide for the spiritual growth of a wife and kids that are going to grow up. They're going to be asking questions, wanting to know things about God. And the last thing that you want to do as a male is have to direct them to somebody else. I mean, you want to be able to know that your child can come to you and you can give them spiritual instruction. And they can view you as a shepherd and not have to divert to the pastor of a church constantly. So that's great. I think there's, there's practical things that you can even do for that. But part of it. What am I going to be? That starts with sitting down and just spending some time thinking. What do I want to do? Like, What desires do I have? What talents do I have? What gifts do I have? Um, and then also managing your time well to become a spiritual provider. That First, it means feeding yourself so that you can feed others. And you don't get that by, by spending all your time you know, doing your hobbies. You know, At some point, the hobbies have to get set aside. And, and you have to really start taking life seriously as far as being a spiritual provider for others. Other thoughts on guys, single guys in our church, what they can do to prepare for um, a godly marriage that they can do now practically.
Sarah said, like, counseling both of them when they weren't married. And I remember Tyson coming to me, you know, early on when I got to Mount Gilead and saying, hey, I'm fighting for purity in my mind with Sarah, and I'm fighting for purity in our relationship. And one of the first things I told him was, when do you plan on marrying her? And I remember, like, his initial responses were like, man, I'm young. Like, I'm too young for marriage, and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And, and I said, well, that's, that's where we're going to start. Like, I'm not going to give you a bunch of don'ts. To, to do as far as fighting for purity, but we're going to fight for how you can enjoy this relationship with Sarah the way God's intended. And so very early on, like I started encouraging him towards marriage. And, um, you know, like I said, initially it was like, I'm too young for that. Like, I can't really be thinking about marriage right now. And I said, no, like we got to start thinking about it now because you're not going to, and this is for anybody. Like I don't let guys come to me and say, help me with, with sexual immorality. How can I fight this without it very quickly getting into what do you need to do to get ready to get married? Because obviously you've got these desires. We're going to talk about how to fight those desires, but we're also going to talk about how to fulfill those desires the way God intended. And so um, preparing for marriage is, is a strong way to fight against sexual morality because it kind of gives you a finish line. It kind of says, this is what I'm working towards. I'm working towards fighting this now, knowing that I'm going to be able to fulfill it the way God's designed it in a God-honoring marriage. Um, <laughs> One other thing that I didn't really expect when I got married, like I was feeling all those other things, but really hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about what it meant for me to be a dad. And now, obviously, that I am 
pursuing marriage to, in a sense of in, in pursuing purity and pursuing treating women like sisters and mothers and all women like mothers like to also really stop and consider like what would it mean for me to be a spiritual leader in my family, not only with my wife, but should I have a child immediately after me for 10 years down line? Always with the possibility because I think it is in God's obvious plan that children come forward from marriage. It is but I, just, I think that's something that can be you know, missed. You know, see these things and get married and look happy and happy. But at the same time, there's a bit of God honoring aspect of raising children that I needed to have thought about long time. So that when the time has come now, I can have a plan in place. And luckily, with Macy being eight years old, I can make a lot of mistakes and she's not going to be But at the same time, like, seriously, like, taking some time to consider, like, what it means to leave my family or raise a son or raise a daughter. You haven't really thought to that, and I don't think it's really practical. At least, you know, to be in my life into that. I was going to say that, um, that, that I think that I went into marriage thinking that I didn't need to be the spiritual case star in our life and in our marriage. Is, um, I didn't have to potentially be growing more than my wife in order to lead her. And I, through the years of marriage, I've discovered that I need to be the spirit of the and that's our reference to what I'm saying. That I need to be growing more, I need to be reading more books, I need to be in the Word more, uh, I need to be growing more, I need to be um, with guys more and learning and growing and setting that example because if I'm not doing that, and if you're not doing that now, you won't do it when you're in marriage. So you've got to do that now. You've got to be pursuing sanctification harder than your wife is, because when you're doing that, then she'll desire to follow you. So if you're not pursuing sanctification more, um, then she won't pursue sanctification more. If you're pursuing holiness and godliness in your life, then she'll naturally follow after you. And that's something that has taken me a long time to learn, but I feel like I'm, I'm getting to that point now where, where that's my desire, is, is to pursue it as hard as I can, that's definitely bucking the, the church trend because in the trend the trend in church is that the woman is the pace setter spiritually in the house. She's the one that's got the family in church. She's the one that's in Bible study. She's the one that's in discipleship. I mean, those are things that are normally what women are known for more than men. And that's certainly a thing that we've wanted to counteract here at Sovereign Hope is that we're going to go after the hearts of the men. We want to see men leading the families. Knowing that when that's working the way that it's supposed to, the rest of the family is going to flourish spiritually. That um, we'll figure out the rest of it when we get there. But if we can attack the hearts of men from the outset, that we're going to see spiritual um, spiritual growth filter down into all aspects of the family. So I think that's a great point that, that going into a marriage, you recognize I've got to be the one that's setting the pace for my family. What are some practical things that our single females can do in this church to get ready for marriage? If you are of the, you know, if you think, yes, I'm one of those guys that's supposed to be married, you may have no clue who your wife is going to be at this point. Luke may have no idea who your wife is going to be, but it's not too early to start praying for that wife. Right. God, I don't know who you have picked out for me, but I'm praying for her. Guard her mind, guard my mind. And it may seem kind of frivolous, but the bottom line is God has a plan for your life. God has a spouse picked out for you. 
and you can you can say it's like you guys should be praying for each other incessantly. You know, hey, helper helps you know that kind of thing. So it is never too early to pray for your spouse, even if you don't pray more fluently. Things for the females, because for the female, it's a, it's a totally different perspective. Because the female has to wait a lot of times; she's got to wait for the guy to show that initiative to pursue the relationship. So, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit. What are some things that our single females can do that want to be married that? Maybe they're even have already figured out what they want to be when they grow up, or already financially providing for themselves. Like, what's next for them as far as waiting for God's timing? How can they um, maybe pursue contentment as they wait, and then even maybe preparing themselves in the time of waiting for a godly marriage? I think my husband. I'm shocked that he has not said this. Just to recognize Mr. Darcy. Colonel Brandon and Mr. Notley are all fictional characters. And they have realistic expectations of your husband. Um, even though this is a big thing because I'm so type A personality, I want it all planned out. Here's my list. Let's go by and fix the list and say, I'm Jason. He told her often how we have made a 15 year marriage and it's triggered by the grace of God. Oh, telling my list. That's right. But is to have realistic expectations for either the guy you're dating or um, the guy you're, you're engaged to. That doesn't mean he doesn't have to work at it. Don't get me wrong. He has to work at it. He needs to work at it. He needs to woo you. But he can't be kind. And he obviously has not been a guy. But have realistic expectations of them that, you know, all that that wonderful fuzzy stuff that you have in the beginning that it takes that to work to sustain it. Um, and it changes and you have to change with that. But in, in, in doing all that, especially when kids come into picture, the stress of your husband being back in school and juggling all that, um, to have realistic expectations of your spouse that he really is only human and he can only do what he can. And I'll be honest, I've got to give Trish props on this. She has really <laughs> set up to the plan. I mean, when our world was rock, when I, you know, going back to school and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I had a very, very singular focus um, out of necessity at this point. Um, but being her acknowledging that fact, okay, you do have to focus on school. Like I'm stepping up and, and, and bending over backwards to make it easier for me so that I don't have to stress about, well, how's this going to get done? How's that going to get done? She just gets done so that I can focus on my school and getting into that school theater player. Um, uh, and so, um, her willingness to flex and bend and say, okay, I have to do this right now, but when I get married, I'm going to be starting. Her willingness to flex and say, okay, I know I've got to pick it up a little more in this case because you need that extra time. I'm going to do what you've got to do. So be flexible and, and understand that things are going to come up and you're going to have to 
Taking that and going back to the um, the same idea that you know we're talking about spiritual provision, while the man is the provider spiritually for the entire family, in most instances the man is gone for the majority of the day at work, and so the woman does take on the spiritual provision for her children. And so obviously, like Jake's talking about, she's got to know God because on a daily basis she is going to be the one that's expected to pass on a lot of. The knowledge of God to the children, while the man will take full responsibility as the shepherd of the family on a practical daily basis. I mean, if she doesn't know God, then that family is not going to flourish spiritually the way that they need to from the children's perspective. And so that's a great point, too, using that time. Right. Beginning, you need to learn to love his mother. Um, 
I have had the privilege of having one of the dearest mother-in-laws. And, uh, you know, you might think, well, I hate her, but I love him. You, you need to do your best to love her, because whether they're a uh, close mother and son, she is his mom, and she's going to be in your life, some of them at a smaller degree than a, a larger degree, but you need to work really, really hard at loving his mom. We have a lot of single girls in our church, but like all the moms are stay-at-home moms. So there's a lot of opportunity for y'all to come spend the day with us. We can bring them. We don't wear our clothes. We get all the work. I kind of think of doing this in the church today, because I don't want to like the homeschool kids. I'm not a single girl. Jessica mentioned in our group this week that one thing for, for girls, too, is just almost learn 
to um, look for ways to submit to male leadership before marriage, like looking for males that are taking the leadership role and learning to, because this is a result of the fall. I mean, we're told in Genesis that part of the result of sin is that the woman wants to um, take control of the male leadership in the marriage relationship. And so fighting against some of that tendency now to try to submit yourself to um, different males in your life and trying to learn that submission so that when it does come where you've got a man who's in the in the marriage relationship trying to lead you that that you've learned how to follow that leadership like you're talking about that um, that that's a that's a, a big point of contention in some marriages that there's the battle over control and um, seeing what God says in scripture about it and, and learning some of those roles now and when we talk about this back at Mount Gilead, we talk to you know, I encourage the guys, the single guys, to try to take leadership role in the church as single guys so that single girls have something to learn to submit to, to, to learn how to serve and, and um, fulfill their role by seeing man fulfill his role in the church as well. I think it's really important to um, prepare for a godly marriage. Anything else before we close it out? But then, like, uh, sex, even though, like, why do you submit and serve? Like, what? Like, the role of leadership in service, and so regarding getting married, like, to help fight sexual morality, even in, like, the uh, relationship, like, when you guys are interested with each other, like, your role is always to serve in, like, the acts of, um, like, sexual. Closely, I want to encourage, you know, we didn't get as far as I wanted to, you know, in the Q&A time, but um, I want to encourage from the single perspective for you guys to um, to take advantage of the opportunities to spend with those that are married, to use it as a time to learn um, what it's going to be like to be a, a husband or a wife, to, to use this as a time to hone skills, um, you know, from the, from the girl's perspective, like Anna talked about, like things that you're going to need to know to serve your husband. Um, things that you can take advantage of right now is opportunities to learn how to do some of those things um, while learning to be um, the spiritual provider as well as, as a woman. And for the man, like learning um, skills for providing for the family financially, like getting with some of the guys that are, have learned how to take the salary that they make and distribute it a long way, you know, to really provide for a family, to to take advantage of just spending time with some of the married couples in our church to prepare for 
marriage. I would encourage you to take advantage of that because as I started off by saying, we are, we are blessed in this church to have some godly married couples to serve as examples to you younger people. Um, and I'm excited to see how God's going to use that as, as we continue to progress as a church and we see marriages you know, happen within our church, I think, as well. It's going to be cool to see how those married couples have served as a good example for that. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Um, I know today was different. Hopefully it was encouraging for us to go back and kind of review some of that stuff together and then use this as a time to encourage one another. And like the book of Proverbs says, to seek wisdom from people within our church about how we can do this together, how we can wage warfare and through an abundance of counselors find victory over our sin as we pursue sanctification together. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for our time together today. I thank you for your word and how it... Um, directs every aspect of our life. God, I thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us that can, um, that he can interpret scripture for us as we read and study. So God, I'm so thankful that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And uh, God, I thank you for each individual that makes up this church. Thank you for the time that we've had to encourage one another and to um, share wisdom with each other. God, I pray that we would uh, continue to fight for sanctification in the lives of ourselves and in the lives of others in this church. God, that we would learn how to control our desires uh, because we know you and because we know your goodness. And uh, God, I do pray for the sanctification of our church, that you would continue to make us more and more holy the way that you have called us to be. And God, I pray that as we leave today, that we would be faithful to, to serve and love others and not abuse others. God, in the context of our family and, and our workplace, God, that we would seek to serve and love each other this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.